It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined yet again by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. Austin, what's up, man? Hey, round two. Let's do more blood pressure stuff today. It's like Street Fighter. Round two, fight. <laughs> this is episode 178. This is part two of our two-part series on blood pressure, what happens during exercise, what to do about it. And, you know, again, I just want to reassure you, this is not just about what is blood pressure, what is high blood pressure and, you know, how to manage it. We could just send you to the guidelines for that. This is, uh, we're getting a little, a little more nuanced here. So for example, is a blood pressure of 480 over 350 during exercise bad? What are the changes on, on blood pressure from exercise? How do they stack up to medications? So we'll get to all that more in this week's podcast. Again, episode 178. Uh, before we hop in a few announcements, thing number one, still have our free app available for download in the Apple app store. So if you want to log training, you want to log changes in body composition, you want to access templates, you want to build your own template, check out the app. It's available for free. Just search Barbell Medicine in the Apple app store or click on the link in the description below. Also, please take our survey. We're trying to bring on a few sponsors to our podcast so we can outsource the production uh, component of this and we can focus on the content. So if you fill out that survey, it'd be super useful to us. And then also, if you're in North America, uh, you know that this weekend, upcoming weekend is Memorial Day weekend. It is a holiday. And as such, we are running a sale. If you're outside the United States, well, we have a holiday this weekend and you get access to the sale too. So it's a four day sale, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, each day has their own specific sale. As far as what's for sale, well, you're going to have to wait. Uh, we'll be announcing those day by day, but we will have different sales on each different day. So a special sale for Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. Uh, some restrictions apply, of course, but uh, you can use the codes that are in the description below uh, at checkout to get your discount. So MDWSAT for Saturday, MDWSUN for Sunday, and MDWMON for Monday. Uh, steep discounts on stuff in the store. Again, some restrictions apply, but uh, should be pretty good, and I'm very excited about it. If you are not subscribed to our newsletter, uh, we're going to put all the codes there and on our social media. And if you're not uh, on social media and you don't subscribe to our newsletter, well, they're going to be on our website too. So uh, yeah, so some good stuff coming. Those will all be, again, linked in the description below. And if you're a subscriber to our newsletter, you already knew about this or will know about this, depending on what date this goes up. But yeah, happy Memorial Day weekend. Let's get in now to the second part of our uh, high blood pressure podcast. The last uh, part one, we talked about what is blood pressure, why is high elevated blood pressure uh, not great for you, why is elevated blood pressure during activity uh, much different, and this one we're going to talk about how many people are affected by high blood pressure and uh, what to do about it. So Austin, Dr. Baraki, is this like a big deal, small deal, medium deal? Like what sort of, what sort of uh, population really ac uh, actually has high blood pressure? Yeah, I would say this is a, a very big deal. And we're hoping that this podcast will provide people with more, uh, whereas the last one was a lot more informational on the topic, this one more aiming to be more practical um, as far as what you should do about it if you find your blood pressure is high. And that's kind of in parallel with the article series that this podcast is to pair with. The first one was more informational on the website and the second one was more practical. How do I how do I deal with this? So just to just so that people understand why we're harping on this so much, why we're spending multiple hours of podcasting on it. High blood pressure affects uh, half of all adults in the United States and is the leading contributor to premature death around the world. Um, so around the world, the number one risk factor for premature death is going to be high blood pressure. It accounts for about 13 deaths uh, uh, globally 
each year. And that's according to some WHO data back from 2009 that uh, we're hoping to see some some uh, updated statistics on. But I don't think high blood pressure has uh, dropped off the map as a risk factor. It's certainly still very high as a, as a problem and a cause of premature disease and death. Um, it's actually the most common reason for office visits and for the use of chronic prescription medicines. Uh, and unfortunately, only about half of people with high blood pressure have it under control, meaning that about half of people with high blood pressure don't have it under control. Um, and given that heart disease is, remains the leading cause of premature death um, and high, high blood pressure is among the most prevalent risk factors for premature heart disease, particularly the risk factors that we have control over, um, then it's something that we really ought to figure out how to address. Uh, so super common, major problem, a, f- a large proportion of people don't have it under control, and it's a major risk factor for uh, the most common cause of premature death that we have control over. So, yeah, I'll I'll add another layer here to this this blood pressure onion. Um, high blood pressure tends to be the first symptom or sign rather that um, presents for individuals with metabolic syndrome. And metabolic syndrome, <clears throat> there are a bunch of different ways to sort of screen for it, diagnose it. Um, the one that is most commonly used, particularly in the research, is called the Adult Treatment Panel 3. They talk about waist circumference, fasting glucose, so your sugar in your blood, um, uh, blood lipid levels, et cetera, blood pressure. And of those factors, elevated blood pressure is like the f- first one that presents. And so you could make a case that if you are identifying individuals with high blood pressure, and this number is that big, which it certainly seems to be by the data, and you intervene, particularly with a lot of these lifestyle interventions, that you would subsequently reduce the risk of developing these other uh, medical conditions. And so you think if you could reduce incidence of high blood pressure uh, or progression you know, towards, towards more uh, serious sort of uh, sequelae, and uh, you could reduce the risk of developing diabetes, you could reduce the risk of dyslipidemia or having cholesterol problems, particularly those that contribute to heart disease, you're, you're really tackling a lot of these sort of Western diseases that have made heart disease so prevalent and made the burden on the medical system uh, so significant. So uh, without belaboring the point too much, I think we both agree this is very, very important. And so I think it's important now to talk about, okay, we have elevated or high blood pressure, like what do we do now to manage it uh, or to uh, treat it? Um, we can start out with this sort of body composition and body weight. So we talked about this in our our, uh, our podcast about, um, you know, dietary patterns and this, that, and the other. But like, and I think from a practical standpoint, people hear us talk about, yeah, you know, you'd want to reduce body fat. You'd want to change the dietary pattern to be health promoting, et cetera. But like, how do you even start that conversation? You know, because people who are carrying too much body fat, they know, you know, so close to 85% of them know that they have um, excess body fat and that most of them have tried to lose weight within the past year. So it's not like when you just tell them and you give them a calorie goal and you send them off, but how are you starting this conversation, especially given how prevalent this is? Yeah. So, so we're coming at this through the lens of high blood pressure. So let's assume we have a, a person in front of us who we have confirmed the diagnosis of high blood pressure in. And, you know, ideally, uh, with our clinical evaluations, we're getting, you know, height, weight, BMI, uh, and waist circumference. Not every patient is going to be comfortable getting those things done in clinic. Um, if you are working in that kind of a setting, but if you have access to a waist circumference in this uh, situation, it can be, it can be helpful. Um, but while, as you said, a lot of folks who are carrying excess body fat know it, they may not know the downstream consequences of it 
particularly as it relates to high blood pressure, which is the topic we're kind of focusing on for this podcast. But the general conversation around, you know, managing excess body fat is super complicated and needs to be really individualized to the person that you're interacting with, because you need to um, account for where they're coming from, what their prior experiences have been, uh, uh, and what they are ready to hear and what kind of things they're ready to have a conversation about. But typically, I'm opening the conversation up by seeing their level of understanding about this. Do they already seem to have a grasp that it could be related to their high blood pressure? Do they is that or is that new information for them? Have they done anything to try to reduce the amount of body fat that they're carrying in the past? If so, tell me about those prior experiences. What did you go through? What was it like? What did you try? Um, and that can be super revealing. If they're doing, you know, a bunch of like fad diets out of a magazine that they picked up at the checkout aisle of the grocery store, uh, we got some work to do to, <laughs> you know, compared to um, somebody who has tried a variety of diets and they said, I was able to do great for a few months. And then, you know, this happened and kind of fell off the wagon. That's like a really common experience, a really common story. And so then we have some, you know, educating to do some misconceptions to clear up, maybe to start having a conversation in a non-blaming, non-judgmental way about how common of an experience this is and how, you know, it, we don't need to just keep telling them to try harder because, you know, a lot of these folks have, have tried and uh, coming at this from a different angle, potentially there is a role for not only some of these behavioral strategies, these lifestyle strategies that maybe have temporarily worked well for them in the past, but combining those with other forms of intervention, maybe working closely with a coach, um, maybe other strategies for managing their overall calorie or energy intake. They're managing their dietary pattern suggestions that we may have to improve, you know, how filling their diet is reducing, you know, uh, access to foods that promote cravings and things like that. And then finally, the, you know, considerations for things like uh, weight loss medications that we've talked about on other podcasts that can really facilitate this process quite a bit, particularly with some of our newer agents uh, like semaglutide and coming up soon, I guess, uh, terzepatide and, and some other ones, or whether surgery needs to be, uh, uh, or at least a consultation for uh, a metabolic surgery should be on the table. So it's a broad, complex, wide ranging conversation, need to have, be able to establish and build good rapport with the person, get a good sense of their history, where they're coming from, um, their goals, what they're willing to do, not do, and then maybe do some educating and, and, and suggestions for other strategies to augment what they've already tried. Um, leaning on the things that have worked well for them and, and redirecting away from things that, that haven't. Yeah. Yeah. I think again, that definitely deserves its own podcast, like the weight loss discussion, what do, um, but I think the take home is the, the goal is to reduce body fat and as you know, secondary to that body weight, they're both going to come down. And this is going to basically kill two birds with one stone because the dietary pattern that we would recommend adopting is going to take care of the dietary, uh, components here, uh, with respect to high blood pressure. We're going to discuss those more in depth here in a couple of minutes, but also reduce the amount of adipose tissue, which directly contributes to blood pressure both by secreting hormones that cause the vessels to constrict, also reducing the mechanical load on the adrenal glands, which again, secretes more hormones and other factors that cause you to retain water and salt and, and also cause the vessels to constrict. So you're really approaching this. It, it, the outcome is that you're, you're, you're hitting this from multiple angles, but you know, improving the dietary pattern to reduce body fat and body weight, kind of you're killing two birds with one stone. And it's how, how you achieve that it's going to require some motivational interviewing and some individualization for the person. But yeah, I agree. That's, that's how you would start the conversation and then kind of see where it leads you versus just being like, lose weight. Here's a calorie goal. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Second thing on top of this, more lifestyle is going to be physical activity and exercise. Now we find this at barbell medicine, super interesting because, 
uh, you know, obviously we're interested in exercise and how that affects health and, and can promote health. Um, up until a few years ago, the data actually wasn't that great on um, how exercise actually helped blood pressure, especially resistance training. So there were two like large meta-analyses, one by Corneliusin and one by uh, D'Souza. And basically they found that if you, when you uh, took sedentary individuals, or previously insufficiently active individuals, and you made them lift weights, their blood pressure would go down, sure, but not by a lot, about four millimeters of mercury for systolic. Uh, we did have an inclination that this this effect may be more profound if you only restricted the analysis to individuals with elevated blood pressure or high blood pressure. So for example, D'Souza did that in 2017, um, basically looked at, okay, well, let's just look at the folks who have elevated blood pressure or high blood pressure and how they respond to resistance training. And they showed almost a doubling of the effect. Basically, systolic blood pressure went down by eight and diastolic blood pressure went down by four, but that didn't get a lot of airplay. Um, this is kind of like tucked away in, you know, as a, in a discussion sentence at the end of the article. Um, and so if you asked most people, professionals in the space, like, Hey, can exercise improve blood pressure? They'd say, yeah, a little bit, especially if you're talking about resistance training, if you're talking about cardiorespiratory training, you know, maybe more of an effect. So we just didn't have a lot of good data that was widely read and, uh, kind of readily available, um, to make this recommendation. You, you think about if somebody had a blood pressure of 150 over 90, and you're like, yeah, if you start exercising, your blood pressure is going to go down by four <laughs> or even eight. You're like, uh, OK, that okay. seems like a lot of work. Um, so in any case, 2019 comes around. Nacy uh, et al. did this meta-analysis on 40,000 total subjects. This has 197 randomized controlled trials on exercise and 197 randomized controlled trials on antihypertensive or, or uh, blood pressure lowering medications. And effectively compared the efficacy of them both just to sort of get a better sense on like, well, how well does exercise work compared to uh, medicine? Let's see if we can suss this out with a larger sort of total sample size. You can do that by studying a bunch of studies, which is a meta-analysis. So when you look at these 40,000 people, um, the individuals who were previously sedentary, who engaged in endurance exercise only, lowered their systolic blood pressure by 4.8. So about five millimeters of mercury for the top number. Uh, those who resistance trained lowered their systolic blood pressure by about three and a half. Uh, and isometric training, which is when the muscles aren't changing length. I assume this is just like wall squats, hand grip dynamometer, and like holding a leg extension or something like that. Um, lowered blood pressure by about five and a half. And you're like, isometric training? What the? But there's just not a lot of studies there. So that number may be artificially kind of inflated. Uh, and then when you combined endurance and resistance training, the systolic blood pressure went down by about six and a half. So you're like, okay, so doing more exercise, higher amounts of exercise volume um, is probably beneficial. Uh, yeah. The main thing to take there though, is that the, uh, these were all comers. So these were people with normal blood pressure and high blood pressure all lumped together. Um, and there was also no real difference um, when the exercise intensity was higher, medium, or low. So it just really mattered that people were exercising period. Uh, in any case, Similar to that last 2017 meta-analysis by D'Souza, when NACI uh, and these 197 exercise randomized control trials just looked at individuals with blood pressure greater than 140, so these are people with hypertension, there was a markedly uh, larger effect. So for example, um, those individuals who did endurance training, they lowered their systolic blood pressure by 8.6. Resistance training lowered the systolic blood pressure by 7.8. When you combined both endurance and resistance training, that lowered systolic blood pressure by 13 and a half millimeters of mercury. And again, there were still no differences in systolic blood pressure lowering effect uh, at higher intensities. Uh, 
Uh, and there, but there were no studies done on the isometric training in this population. So that's all well and good. It seems like there's a larger effect on blood pressure for blood pressure lowering in people with high blood pressure, which is what you would expect. Now you compare that to the blood pressure lowering medications. So again, 197 randomized controlled trials, and you restrict that analysis to only those with high blood pressure. So greater than 140 millimeters of mercury. Uh, although the average systolic blood pressure in that group is much higher. Uh, the systolic blood pressure lowering effect by a single medication was about 8.8 millimeters of mercury on average. And there were no significant differences between the types of medications used. And so if you were going to compare the efficacy of exercise versus medication on blood pressure lowering effect, you'd have to tip your hat to like the combined endurance and resistance training. And so if I were Huberman or Patrick or one of these other boner jams who just, you know, misquotes data and doesn't put it into context, I would say exercise is better than medication for lowering blood pressure. I would just say that. Um, but what you would, if you were trying to make that claim, what you would have to caveat that statement with is in individuals with uh, high blood pressure, thing one, thing two, in individuals who could exercise and were like willing to participate in a, uh, an exercise program, and only a single medica uh, uh, medical agent, which is not really how we treat blood pressure uh, in, in many cases, particularly if their blood pressure is higher than 140 or 150, for example, that person may be prescribed multiple agents. So I wouldn't make that claim. I would just say that exercise is clearly a very large lever that we can pull to lower blood pressure in and of itself. This is independent of any weight changes that may occur uh, indirectly due to exercise. We know that exercise promotes the feelings of fullness or satiety. Uh, we also know that people who are willing to engage in exercise tend to want to engage in other health promoting behaviors. So for, you know, smoking cessation, for example, regular doctor's office visits, et cetera. So there's a lot of stuff going on here, but exercise, the take home from this particular section, exercise appears to work to lower blood pressure. It doesn't really appear to matter which one you do endurance versus resistance training. We prefer you to do both. We prefer you to do both. It's going to work much, much better for those who have high blood pressure already than those who have normal blood pressure. And even after all that, you still, people still may benefit from medication. That may be the case, but we would still want you to exercise and we'd want you to do both endurance and resistance training, big lever to pull, uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend if you are able to, but not everyone is able to exercise or, or willing to, willing to do this. Um, so there's, you know, definitely some selection, uh, bias in there. Austin, anything else you want to add on the exercise portion? I like it. No, I don't have a ton Whew. to add. <laughs> Oof, doesn't have a ton. Not enough to say. All right, great. So let's get into dietary patterns. Now, Austin, I know what you're going to say. I already know. Okay. You're just going to you're just going to tell people to go keto and call it a day. Is that did my, I get the my gist? <laughs> my default strategy in most situations. Well, you just go keto. It's, it was either that or like nose to tail carnivore. I oh, assume. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's talk about this from a dietary standpoint. Anyway, first off, what sort of dietary pattern would you want somebody to be eating? If they had high blood pressure in general, it tends to be quite similar to the dietary pattern that we recommend people consume when they approach us with issues with high blood cholesterol levels or with high body fat levels. Um, the overarching principles, and these are things that we have talked about before where we're aiming for, you know, an appropriate amount of energy calorie intake that people are consuming. Um, 
we want them to have in, you know the right amount of protein based on our protein recommendations that we've made before. We prefer that their carbohydrate and fat sources uh, amounts be more so to preference, although the actual sources of these foods should ideally confer a high amount of fiber intake, which is going to typically result in lots of plant matter, uh, uh, fruit and vegetable intake. Uh, legumes, etc. And then when it comes to the fat intake that we prefer uh, more so unsaturated fat sources from fish and plant sources, as opposed to um, high amounts of animal based saturated fat uh, uh, intake. Um, And what is high, what is low, we've talked about that at length on other podcasts and in other articles, those are like, the general overarching principles, the important thing to recognize being that there are lots of different diets that somebody could follow and meet those criteria and there need to be because People vary in terms of their dietary preferences, their cultures, what foods they have access to um, in their region or, you know, in a given time of year or something like that. So, you know, the the general principle that uh, principles that I would recommend might be the same for somebody, say, in like, you know, say rural U.S. versus like, you know, in India or something like that. But the actual diet, what it'll actually look like when it comes down to it might be quite different due to sociocultural differences and preferences and things like that. It's just these tick boxes that we're aiming to to meet um, generally can can be generalized. I I noticed that you didn't focus on a high potassium, high magnesium, high calcium dietary pattern? Like, are you just not woke or what's the deal? (laughs) Yeah. So in most conversations around diets, as they pretend to blood pressure, there, there, there is often a big emphasis on things like sodium, uh, uh, and potassium and sometimes magnesium and sometimes calcium and things like that. And certainly there is evidence around a lot of these things as they pertain to blood pressure. Although I will say that like trials of direct supplementation of these things, just taking, you know, eating your habitual diet and just like taking a magnesium supplement, for example, typically doesn't have a huge effect. Um, but these, these, uh, micronutrients and things like that in, in our foods definitely do play a role. But I think that when you're having conversations, anybody who has conversations with real people about this stuff, um, that's not the that's not a productive route of conversation. If you tell if you have your average uh, person in your office who has high blood pressure and you're telling them, I want you to eat this many milligrams of potassium a day and this many milligrams of like people don't operate like that. Nobody really operates like that, except for, you know, biohackers or, uh, you know, histrionic <laughs> people who are tracking every every microgram of micronutrient in their in their diet app or something like that, which is not really a, a pragmatic thing for the, you know, the, again, the massive population around the world that stands to benefit from some of these recommendations. And so while it's interesting to know about some of these micronutrient things from a mechanistic standpoint or from a research standpoint, um, it's less helpful than providing food-based recommendations to people. And so that's typically more the route that I go is trying to get a sense of what's the person's preferences, what ac- what foods they have access to, what are their cultural kind of contexts that they're working within and seeing how we can meet some of these criteria that way instead of giving them a number of milligrams of some, you know, micronutrient or something like that to, to consume and certainly to, to supplement. Um, and because when it comes in particular to this question of like supplementation versus substituting foods in the diet, there's probably, you know, some of the differences in outcomes that we see, like some of these supplementation trials are pretty weak, but then we know like pretty clearly that, Hey, high potassium diets are excellent when it comes to, to blood pressure management. Um, there's probably also a role of a ton of other things in those foods. Maybe some of the the fiber that comes along with the potassium rich vegetables, maybe some of the polyphenol content in some of these plant foods, maybe, you know, any number of other things, some of which we probably don't even know exist yet. Um, I don't know. So that's kind of why I focus a lot more on food-based recommendations on the diet 
pattern itself rather than on these like elements and micronutrients and things like that that are cool to nerd out on but not productive for most people when it comes to giving them recommendations yeah the potassium thing i, I think is definitely related to the dietary pattern and, and ultimately like this food matrix effect because there's just more stuff in the food that taking a potassium supplement. It was interesting. Uh, I was, I'd been tracking my intake like relatively tightly cause I'm trying to lose some weight and, uh, you know, get down to skinny boy status, less than 200, just see, see what happens. Join me. Join me. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so I was having anywhere between 10 to 12 servings of, uh, fruits and vegetables per day. I was having an additional six servings of whole grains. I mean, the whole, the dietary pattern was looking, it was looking tight, yo, but, <laughs> My and my so my sodium intake was twelve hundred milligrams just from food, so twelve hundred milligrams a day, which is you know half the the sort of upper limit for the recommendation. So I was feeling pretty good about that. But my potassium intake was at like thirty nine hundred milligrams. It wasn't even close to that forty seven hundred. I mean, really. And so what I realized is that I wasn't having any legumes, um, and then I, I I could have used an additional serving of leafy greens, particularly like. Uh, uh, spinach, kale, something like that. And I, I would get there. So I actually, I literally added one serving of legumes uh, each day and then one serving of uh, uh, the leafy greens. And I was like, boom, 4,900. I mean, I don't feel any better. I'm just like, okay, well, that's that for me because I was already at that level of tracking. That was a simple like substitution or addition in this case to make. Um, but yeah, for most people, your dietary pattern is going to determine your micronutrient sort of intake. And I would focus on the dietary pattern first before the micronutrient intake. Um, if you find yourself very adherent, you like your diet, you're full, the energy, you know, balance thing is going your direction, meaning that you're trending towards or maintaining the appropriate weight, body composition, et cetera. And you really want to take, go to that next step. You can address these micronutrient things, but I think doing that prior to, to, you know, getting the dietary pattern under control and, and appropriate, it, that's a misstep. So for example, sodium, the two biggest predictors of how much dietary sodium that you're getting in a day is how many calories you're eating and how, what's the level of processing in the foods that you're generally eating. In general, if you get your uh, energy intake to the appropriate level, your dietary sodium intake is going to be pretty close uh, to being uh, a normal, unless you're eating a lot of processed foods. So highly processed foods that come in boxes uh, that have, you know, uh, tend to be energy dense and it'd be very difficult to eat the appropriate energy balance, you know, uh, if you're eating a lot of processed foods, just it's hard to stop when that mac and cheese kicks in. You know what I'm saying? Compared, <laughs> compared to eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, et cetera, things that are you know minimally processed or not processed at all. So I would do those two things first. Like let's lower the level, average level of processing in the diet. That's going to keep get sodium levels down in addition to trying to fix the energy intake. And you can do one before the other. I think reducing intake of processed foods is likely to correct the energy intake thing or get make it much, much closer. And then your sodium intake is going to like kind of take care of itself. So most of this, the primary component or contributor to sodium intake is what's in the food, not what you're adding. So people are like, oh, but it's the soy sauce. I'm like, I mean, I get, yeah, if you're going ham on the soy sauce or other like really sodium laden condiment, that's possible, but that would be more of an exception rather than the rule. The rule is more like what you're getting in your, in your, in the actual foods. That's the primary source of sodium. Yes. I agree strongly with <laughs> across the board. That's usually, I mean, that, you know, you, you, when you were asking about like, how do you actually approach this in practice? And that's pretty much it. Like I try to get a sense of what the diet looks like now and try to find mostly things that I can substitute one for another that would lean things more in the direction of this pattern that we're overall trying to reach. Um, and so, yeah, you pretty much nailed it. Nailed it. Uh, all right, cool. So we talked about 
uh, body composition, body weight. We talked about exercise. We talked about diet. So you guys know what's coming next on the lifestyle train. Choo-choo. We're talking about sleep, baby. So I just assume you want people to sleep. Like that's, you just want yeah, people to at some point engage uh, in like a REM cycle. <laughs> that would be preferable. I mean, I think that uh, this is one, as I alluded to in the last episode, is something that I think is underappreciated in its impact on blood pressure. Um, and this can come either from inadequate amounts of sleep in terms of like hours. We typically recommend about an average or about seven and a half hours or so, broadly speaking. Although some people may need a little more, some may do okay on a little bit less, although people who think they do okay on a little less are maybe over, overestimating. <laughs> but um, but, I th- but I think that that's kind of from the quantity standpoint. Quality can relate to a lot of things. Quality, we talk about um, impacting, being impacted by things like sleep hygiene, the, the bedtime habits, the sleep environment, temperature, lights, all that kind of thing that we've talked about on a sleep podcast before. Um, and very importantly, with respect to the uh, topic of blood pressure is the potential for uh, obstructive sleep apnea. And this is a condition that, as I mentioned, uh, have an article that just went up on the website describing this. Um, but it's a disorder of breathing while you are asleep, to summarize. And people will stop breathing or slow down their breathing without realizing it. And when the nervous system, your brain, kind of figures this out, um, it will rouse you awake. And it may just be enough to get you breathing again, but not enough to actually bring you to full consciousness. So you may not be aware that you are stopping breathing, slowing down breathing, or waking up. But this could be happening hundreds of times a night. And it's a very prevalent condition. I think we're approaching something like a billion people around the world with a B that, that have sleep apnea. Um, and it has a wide number of complications of its own to, to include most relevant for us here is high blood pressure. Um, but it can, you know, cause fatigue, poor, you know, memory, cognitive kind of uh, impairment, depending on the degree that uh, of, of sleep apnea that somebody has can increase the risk of car crashes, um, can increase the risk of heart, heart disease, atrial fibrillation, high blood pressure in the lungs, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other kind of conditions that can uh, lead to downstream problems. And so in addition to all of this, impairments in sleep, either in a- inadequate amount of sleep or poor quality sleep for any of these reasons itself, also has other complications to include uh, increasing feelings of hunger and appetite and decreasing feelings of fullness, such that people tend to spontaneously eat more calories uh, when they have a sleep issue like this, uh, gain weight, gain body fat, and then boom, now you have another route to developing high blood pressure, uh, uh, cholesterol issues, uh, uh, you know, diabetes, high blood, pre- blood sugar, heart disease, and stroke, and all these other complications that we've been trying to avoid. So um, all in all, uh, sleeping enough and getting high quality sleep is super important, um, has a more important role in blood pressure regulation on its own than people realize. Uh, Your blood pressure will spontaneously come down if you go from having terrible sleep to really high quality sleep. Um, And it's something that is worth addressing and it's something that I address with just about every patient that I see in general, but definitely if they have high blood pressure, I'm trying to get a sense of their sleep and seeing whether they have enough risk factors or reasons that make me want to screen them and test them for sleep apnea. And so then the way you would go about doing this is using a handy screening tool called the Stop Bang, S-T-O-P-B-A-N-G uh, questionnaire. It's just easily Googleable. It's a set of, I think, like eight questions. Uh, yes, no. And then based on the score, that's something that you could take to your doctor uh, and have a conversation about whether sleep testing, which is something that can be done really conveniently in the home, or it can be done in a sleep lab, either way, um, can be helpful to diagnose and treat uh, potential sleep apnea, which is underdiagnosed, real common, and can lead to all these complications. And getting that treated will not only improve the quality of sleep, leading to you know 
spontaneous decreases in calorie intake and things like that. It'll lower your blood pressure, improve mood, energy, you know, recovery. If your overall focus is on training and the performance and things like that. Um, so worth, definitely worth addressing. And, and just, you know, so people know we've talked about this before, but both of us have sleep apnea and, uh, it's treated for, for both of us. For, for me, I continue to use a, uh, a pap mask to uh, help keep the airways open while I'm while I'm uh, uh, sleeping at night. And you have at one point used a pap mask, and you've used other strategies intermittently uh, uh, since then to manage yours as well. As far as I know, yeah, dental appliance. I just I'm less likely to take it out or pull it off. It's just like in there, just keeping my mouth and jaw open so that enough oxygen goes in. But I, you know, it's really an aspirational goal to to get so jacked that you. <laughs> You have sleep apnea. I think that's the goal. Um, I will. Last thing I'll say about sleep has to do with sort of, you know, we, we talk about quantity and quality, right? And some of this is related to opportunity, like how much time do you actually have to sleep? Um, but, you know, people will say, well, I need to be tracking this again. It's like if there's a thing that we're recommending, it's like, well, how do I track it? It's like I need a Fitbit or I need a whoop or, you know, whatever. Some of these other things. And, and actually, when you when you go dive into like what sort of parameters best predict people's like sleep, sleep quality and sleep quantity. Um, this nebulous sort of term sleep health. Uh, one of the best sort of scales that we have is called the sated scale. And so like the question from the American Academy of sleep medicine is like, do you feel sated after sleep? And this is an acronym it stands for satisfaction, alertness, timing, efficiency, and duration. Are you satisfied with your sleep? Do you stay awake all day without dozing? Are you alert timing? Are you falling asleep? Uh, are you asleep or trying to sleep between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m., which you would know if <laughs> if you were awake then on average. Efficiency, that's the E in sated. Do you spend less than 30 minutes awake at night? Um, and then duration, do you sleep between six to eight hours a day? And you can like, you know, it's not a always or never. It's not black and white. But if most of the time you're sated with your sleep, like, okay, move on. You know, assuming that you don't have undiagnosed sleep apnea. You don't need like this diagnostic device at home. That's like telling you, well, you, well, you farted three times and it actually, you know, woke you up. It's like, you could go your whole life without knowing that if, yeah. if you get a bed partner, they'll tell you, um, or maybe not if they love you. So I don't know. I do, I do like that, that scale. If you really are trying to dr- drill down on some, uh, more granular details, but I would just a- a- avoid against sort of, I got to measure this thing to figure out if I'm sleeping enough. It's like, if you're alert and not tired throughout the day and you like have a pretty normal sleep schedule, like you're probably doing okay there. Sleep apnea, screening for it is fine, but you don't need to go, you know, crazy on this stuff. Anyway. All right, moving on. Still on the lifestyle train uh, to some degree here. Uh, the sort of fifth thing you can do or modify uh, with respect to having elevated or high blood pressure has to do with a sort of alcohol, smoking, drugs, medications, um, and to some extent, medical conditions that you could treat by a lot of the stuff uh, that we already talked about. Now with alcohol and smoking, we're really talking about uh, or sorry, with alcohol in particular, we're talking about dose more than anything else. So it's not just like one drink is going to be problematic. Really, the uh, blood pressure tends to have a a pretty bad response to uh, high amounts of alcohol use. So people that would otherwise qualify for like substance use disorder, we have a whole podcast on alcohol. Link that in the description below. I won't spend too much time belaboring this point, but if you're having, if you're a guy having more than two drinks per day or a woman more than one drink per day, um, that's more than the sort of previously accepted, now more controversial upper limit of healthy sort of levels of drinking. Um, and that would c- could contribute to elevated blood pressure. In particular, if you're uh, having withdrawal symptoms from alcohol, uh, that can also really raise blood pressure. 
Uh, did you have something more on alcohol you wanted to? Yeah, this is something that I definitely address with with pretty much everybody in general, as well as in particular those with, with high blood pressure. I think that what I find most often is those guidelines of like one drink a day or two drinks a day, they really depend on your definitions of a drink. And we talked about this, I think, in a previous alcohol podcast, and it relates to the number of grams of alcohol in the beverage, which then relates to both the volume of drink that it is and the proof uh, of, of, uh, of spirit or beer or wine or whatever that, that you're consuming. And I think, uh, they may be fine from like a research standpoint, say a drink a day for men or whatever the case is, you know, is, is unlikely to cause raging high blood pressure. But most often what I find in conversations with people is either, you know, no consideration of this, or if they're like, yeah, I have a drink or two a day, it is, uh, wildly above the, uh, recommendations when you compare it to the actual amount of alcohol, like in terms of grams of alcohol. So, so, so what do I, I, I mean by that is like somebody might think that they're having, you know, two pours of whiskey or something like that and call that two drinks, but like it's a hundred and maybe they're having like a hundred plus proof or 120 proof or sometimes even higher than that. Right. And then what they're pouring is more than an ounce and a half. So it's both higher in volume and higher in proof. And maybe by the actual criteria of say, you know, ounce and a half of 80 proof or something, which um, for a habitual drinker may not be uh, uh, in their routine. Um, they may end up having more than two drinks just in the one beverage that they pour. And then they're having two of those or more of those. And so they're just the, the estimation of the number of drinks, just calling it a drink is, uh, unhelpful for a lot of folks. And so I actually try to drill down and kind of get a better quantitation of what are they drinking? How much, what's the proof and try to compare that and see like, Hey, is this actually like four drinks a day? Ultimately what you're having It's such that, Hey, I have a much, just because it goes into two cups or something like that doesn't make it two drinks. And we need to have a, a more of a conversation about maybe this is a bigger risk factor than it seems, you know? Yep. Yep. That's good. That's a good point. Uh, smoking, obviously tobacco use at really any level is a risk factor for increased blood pressure. This is due both directly to the effects of nicotine on the vascular system, but also the inhaled TARs and carcinogens and other factors in inhaled smoke, um, all of that stuff uh, tends to increase uh, blood pressure. So um, what people will ask then, they're like, well, what about like snus or just nicotine? You know, what's the, what are the risks there? And the data is not as clean as we'd want it to be. We have people who previously smoked who subsequently use nicotine replacement therapy compared to people who quit smoking who did not use nicotine replacement therapy or were only on nicotine replacement therapy for a short period of time and it subsequently came off. And then you compare that to long-term, longer-term, you know, years, one to three years, I think is the study period I'm recalling, uh, who were still on nicotine replacement therapy. And you're like, all right, so does nicotine in and of itself tend to increase blood pressure? And the answer seems like, yeah. So that being said, people respond differently, you know, and, uh, Three years is not enough time to really evaluate, in my estimation, the effect of, you know, to the degree of blood pressure going up when, especially when other variables are not really well controlled or maybe being monitored, uh, like dietary pattern, weight change, activity status, et cetera. And ultimately, if you had to compare the effect of blood pressure, like between smoking, uh, or using tobacco and using nicotine replacement, I would suspect. And in fact, these studies do find that nicotine replacement therapy is better. So I don't want to like pretend that this is settled, done and dusted. We just don't have a lot of good data on pure nicotine only, particularly in, in populations that have never smoked. So I just wouldn't comment on that with any sort of confidence, which may be different than other podcasts you may listen to depending <laughs> on the subject matter. Um, last thing here, uh, drugs, medications. Austin, 
you, you could go on, we could have a whole another podcast series on drugs and medications that may influence blood pressure. But the most common stuff that you see with people in the hospital that increases their blood pressure or has a potential to, I assume you're talking about steroids, not the cool kind, but uh, <laughs> what, what else are people on that are, they're walking around with? Uh, yeah. So, so stimulants are going to be pretty common. So stimulants used for things like ADHD, et cetera. Um, not caffeine, just by the way, people are going to hear that and they're going to, yep. they're like caffeine, like not literally caffeine. not caffeine. No, the stimulants, this is literally like, you know, amphetamines that we use to treat <laughs> attention deficit issues. Um, chronic use of certain pain medicines, like long-term, regular, near-daily use of things like NSAIDs, like ibuprofen, naproxen, et cetera. Even interestingly, I learned this recently that acetaminophen or Tylenol, like regular chronic daily use of Tylenol actually has a detectable increase in blood pressure, although it's not massive. Um, oral birth control pills in some individuals who are susceptible can have that effect. Uh, steroids, as you mentioned, and then tainted contaminated supplements can have tons of stuff in them that can contribute to um, raise, rises in blood pressure, as well as like, you know, liver injury, kidney injury, lots of other things that are, you know, you are best avoided. Um, but those are a small set of the drugs and, and medicines that I kind of um, am looking for when I'm having a conversation with somebody about this. Um, outside of these topics, again, we mentioned earlier that there are situations where people can have other medical conditions that themselves can cause high blood pressure. And these are things that um, are maybe more or less treatable. It, it just kind of varies. And these are things that we ought to look for before just saying like, oh, it's all just because you have too much body fat or it's just your genetics. So people, anybody with existing kidney disease, kidneys are, as, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think in the last podcast, a major regulator of blood pressure. And so anybody with kidney disease um, maybe is, is going to probably be at high risk of developing high blood pressure. There are a variety of hormones. I also mentioned a bunch of hormones uh, uh, that can uh, influence blood pressure, things like thyroid hormone. Another really important one that comes out of the adrenal glands that you have mentioned a few times, one called aldosterone. Um, some of these that are checked in certain situations. And, and these are, you know, situations where it's like, let's say somebody is like lean and young and has like raging high blood pressure and we can't find a reason for why. Like this is that kind of a situation. Or somebody doesn't who isn't maybe lean or young, but is having what we call very resistant high blood pressure, meaning they're like on multiple medicines and we're still having a hard time getting it under control. And we think they're taking these medicines. Um, these are some of the triggers that we would have to look for some of these conditions. Although, as I mentioned in the article, there's some controversy, some things they're like, oh, we should screen everybody for this. That's still kind of being, being hashed out. And then finally, um, uh, pregnancy is a unique situation when it comes to blood pressure. And so that's something where if somebody who is pregnant has measured high blood pressure, either coming into the pregnancy or develops it during pregnancy, 100% definitely needs to be addressed with their obstetrician uh, because there are a number of things that you would rather avoid uh, from uh, untreated high blood pressure throughout pregnancy, especially as it gets all the way through to delivery. So those are some of the other medicines and medical conditions, um, a, a, a non-comprehensive set that uh, we think about that we uh, try to uh, make sure are addressed when we're talking with somebody with high blood pressure and trying to formulate recommendations for them. I like it. Okay. So we got a bunch of, you know, potential uh, and, uh, points that we can modify um, and, and ultimately improve the trajectory of somebody who's been either recently diagnosed or is at risk for uh, high blood pressure. As far as the actual like medications that we can use, the most common agents that you see in practice, um, because if our audience population is representative, maybe half of them, I would suspect less than half, but maybe close to half would maybe have it. And, and there's, there's definitely a good proportion that are on antihypertensives right now. Um, I just had somebody in my DMS last week telling me that she was on a beta blocker and I was like, but why? 
Anyway, so just as uh, a cursory, discu- cursory discussion of medications, um, what are the sort of things you use uh, off the off from the jump, and then what are some things that people uh, might need to know about with respect to treating high blood pressure? Sure, yeah, and and I agree. I suspect that there are some people listening right now who definitely take some of these, so it's worth going over. Although, just as a heads up, that you know, drug names and drug classes and things like that. Inevitably, you know, inevitably is going to involve some some medical jargon, and this can be tough to follow. And so, to make it easier for you, um, if you go to the blood pressure article on the website, part two, uh, I discuss. Med- there's a section on blood pressure with a small table, just indicating what are the typical ones that I used that that uh, you know uh, you asked me about here. So. In general, there are three categories of blood pressure medicines that are kind of used what we call first line for, in general, people with high blood pressure. And and so there are certain situations in which uh, if they had another medical condition at the same time, it may steer you in a different direction. And this is definitely something that is, you know, getting beyond the scope of the podcast here, but this is something that the medical, you know, the clinicians in the audience would, would already know uh, or should already know about. Like if they have heart failure, that's going to change, you know, the medicine that I, that I uh, choose. Um, but in general for, for, you know, routine run of the mill, high blood pressure that we deem uh, the person would benefit from medication. The uh, one class is known as diuretics and diuretics are things that at their absolute most oversimplified level cause you to pee out sodium and water follows it. Um, uh, and so there are a couple general classes. So thiazide diuretics. So some people may be on hydrochlorothiazide or commonly known as HCTZ or chlorothaladone or common thiazide diuretics. Um, later on in the process of treatment, uh, uh, something called a mineralocorticoid antagonist or spironolactone or aldactone is, uh, I tend to use it more often, I think, than, um, maybe most or, or uh, when when we were trained for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, but these are kind of uh, a diuretics category of medicines that contribute to this peeing out of sodium and water. Again, the, the actual way that they work to lower blood pressure is quite a bit more complicated than that. Uh, and long-term may be less related to, to that effect anyway, but uh, that's one category. The next is going to be medicines that directly dilate the blood vessels. In particular, they're known as calcium channel blockers. The most common ones in the U.S. these days that you see used are amlodipine and nifedipine, although there are others. And again, others might be used in, in other you know, parts of the world. Um, but, uh, th- this calcium channel blocker class is, uh, another first line, you know, common, commonly used, uh, class. And then finally, we have the class that are known as ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. These are uh, kind of cousins, but they all tend to work on the same pathway. And so common ones in this class are lisinopril, um, among the ACE inhibitors or enalapril or ramipril, a lot of things that end in pril. And then the angiotensin receptor blockers are losartan, valsartan, telmisartan, you see the common ending, sartan, candesartan, et cetera. Um, and so uh, among these, you know, I think that going through training, you know, years, uh, uh, you know, earlier on, uh, we tended to lean on ACE inhibitors a lot more heavily. They were uh, uh, generic, very accessible and expensive. Now, uh, many of the angiotensin receptor blockers, the sartans, are, uh, ha- have become generic and are, to some extent, less expensive and more accessible, and they kind of bypass some of the potential side effects that ACE inhibitors have, although in ACE inhibitors, for most people, tend to be, you know, do just fine and be generally, you know, pretty well tolerated. So these are the, the three big categories or big classes. These are going to be some of the most common ones that, that people are on. But as I said, if somebody has other unique medical conditions, um, 
say, for example, again, heart failure as, as, as one, then that might shift things to where, oh, they need to be on a beta blocker of some sort right away. But unfortunately, uh, we've talked about this before, we still see patients sometimes who are on like no other blood, none of those three first line ones that I mentioned, but they are on a beta blocker, which is generally very uh, odd, uh, catches our attention, we try to figure out why, if there's not another reason, it might be because their doctor is, uh, uh, let's say, on the older side, and maybe they're uh, a little out of date with some of the current best guidelines, because there are some reasons to pick, you know, some of these other ones as, as opposed to those. Um, and then finally, the last thing that, and I get into this a little bit in the article is, is common conversations with patients is obviously most people don't want to be on medicines. Uh, people view a met- new medical diagnosis. It, you know, changes their life, their self-conception. Suddenly I have a disease and having to take a medicine every day, or sometimes multiple times a day, if somebody picks a really bad blood pressure medicine to give you, um, is, is, uh, it requires effort. It's a, it's a, it's can be annoying for people. And, and each, if they need multiple medicines, sometimes like each successive medicine that the person needs is viewed as like more complication, more further, you know, defeat or something like that. Um, and so most people would prefer to be on no medicines, which, Hey, I agree. I'm with you. But, uh, as I say in the article, you don't get a prize for going throughout life not taking any medicines if you have a condition that would potentially benefit, right? So if you have untreated blood pressure for many years and you have a stroke, you don't get to say, hey, but at least I didn't take a medicine this whole time. <laughs> so if it's something that needs to be treated, or if, if the potential benefit of the medicine outweighs the potential harm, then it is worth taking the medicine in your situation. And when it comes to choosing medicines and mixing and matching and dosing and things like that, what we know is that the higher the dose of a single blood pressure medicine, um, you get diminishing returns on the blood pressure lowering effect. So I'll give an example of, um, let's say lisinopril, one of those common ones that both of us have used a bunch in the past. If you start somebody at, you know, five or 10 milligrams, you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck in blood pressure lowering. If you increase that to 20, you're going to lower it a little bit further, but not quite as much as that first 10 milligrams. And then if you go to 40, you're going to increase it maybe a little bit more, but still not quite as much as the first, uh, as, as each prior, prior step. And so the efficacy, how much additional blood pressure lowering you get by escalating the dose of these medicines diminishes the higher you go. On the other hand, the potential for side effects goes up as you increase the dose. And so, you know, for example, the calcium channel blocker class that I mentioned, you can take amlodipine and go from 2.5 milligrams to 5 milligrams to 10 milligrams, and you're going to get diminishing blood pressure lowering effect. And by the time you get to 10 every day, somebody might say, hey, I'm noticing that my legs are swelling up a little bit, which is not an unusual kind of uh, symptom that people can have on that medicine. And so, there's been some interesting research and it's impacted my practice, at least with some patients who are willing to, to do something like this. But you mentioned at the beginning, we had all these different risk factors or all these different ways that people can get high blood pressure. And we want to try to attack them from as many different angles as possible, right? We want to address the body fat, the exercise, the diet, the sleep, the alcohol, et cetera, et cetera. You can take a similar approach when it comes to the medications. If we know that we get the biggest bang for our buck in terms of blood pressure lowering from the the lower doses of these medicines, we get diminishing returns by increasing the dose, but we get increasing side effect risk. For those who are very concerned about side effects, it makes more sense to use a very low dose of multiple medicines instead of using one and trying to get to the absolute maximum dose before you add on another one. And so then it brings up a conversation of what we call pill burden, like how many pills is the person willing to take if they end up having to take two 
or three super low dose medicines to get the bang for our buck in terms of blood pressure lowering, uh, but to mitigate the, the side effect risk of, of maximum doses. If they're willing to do that, then cool, we're, we're good to go if that's what's necessary for the person. Some people may say, no, if you prescribe me more than one, I'm not, not going to take it. Well, then we're out of options and we're going to have to max out the one and hope that you don't have any you know side effects from the thing, which again, most of them people do fine with. But this is an interesting interesting strategy um, that we're seeing nowadays. And this same thing applies to like blood cholesterol lowering. We see that, you know, combining low agents, low doses of multiple agents gets us more efficacy than maxing out the doses, uh, the, do- the dose of, of any one uh, of, of any one agent. And so these are things that have kind of impacted the conversations that I have with people and, and potentially my practice, depending on the person's preferences and, and what they're willing to do. So I would summarize just by saying that, you know, we have plenty of highly effective, safe uh, blood pressure lowering medication options. Um, If side effect risk is a concern, then you can get away with, you can do quite well with doing ultra low doses of these things and then just combining more than one. And that comes at the problem from multiple different angles because these medicines work in different ways in the same way that we're talking about attacking high blood pressure from multiple different angles with body fat and exercise and diet and sleep and all these other things. So it's kind of the same paradigm all around. BRB polypill. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to decide if you do happen to compete in a sport that is drug tested and they ascribe to the WADA, uh, World Anti Doping Agency uh, rules, beta blockers are prohibited in a select uh, number of sports archery, automobile racing, golf, darts, shooting, underwater sports, skiing and snowboarding, etc. Also, the di- uh, many of the diuretics themselves, uh, for example, like furosemide, there's also. Uh, on the banned list. Um, and so some of these you can get therapeutic use exemptions or TUEs from your physician. They just have to like submit the form and you got to wait back, uh, wait to hear back. Um, so just wouldn't want somebody to be like, you know, on these medications, go show up for a underwater sports event and then, uh, you know, get, get, in, get in some trouble. So I think it's a good, um, a good p- uh, place to leave the medication, Uh, discussion. So take home messages here. As you start at the beginning, this is one of those things that actually matters. We're generally very skeptical when it comes to like blanket recommendations for screening and evaluation, this, that, and the other, you know, people are like, I just want to check. But well, not this thing, this blood pressure, we'd want you to check and we want you to do it correctly. We've laid that out uh, in written form on the uh, blood pressure articles. And then also in the previous uh, first part of this podcast on how to measure it, how to interpret it, and then what do afterwards. And then as far as how to actually uh, improve blood pressure, if it is does have to be elevated or you have stage one or stage two hypertension um, and reduce the risk uh, of developing either worsening blood pressure or otherwise correct it, we want um, everyone to know what their blood pressure actually is. So that's step one. Step two uh, is lifestyle interventions. So that has to do with Exercise, we know that resistance training and aerobic training uh, both are lar- uh, have large effects on resting blood pressure um, in individuals, especially who have uh, elevated blood pressure. Uh, they seem to do about the same job uh, in isolation, but do a better job when combined. So it really large effect there for blood pressure lowering uh, from exercise uh, that seems to be a little bit better than um, a single medication um, given to folks, although that not, might not be the preferred method of treatment. So would exercise... There, um, the effects of exercise on blood pressure, blood pressure is usually going to go, uh, go is definitely going to go up while you're exercising, but that's not really what we care about. We care about what happens during rest and, uh, that's going to lower your blood pressure, uh, particularly again, if you have elevated blood pressure from a dietary pattern standpoint, 
there's really no special considerations here. Um, we'd want you to eat a diet that is uh, the appropriate energy intake, uh, that it helps you achieve the appropriate uh, body weight, body composition, supports activity, gets uh, enough protein, is rich in lean protein, um, fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, etc. is uh, limited on the saturated fat, sodium, and added salt content. Um, particularly for individuals with high blood pressure, um, we think that eliminating both processed foods uh, in addition to uh, getting the correct energy balance is going to really take care of a lot of those micronutrient things. So rather than, um, micromanaging your micronutrients, which is an excellent name for an article, I think you can really address most of these for, uh, or through, uh, the dietary pattern. Um, as far as sleep goes, we want both the correct, uh, quality, uh, quantity, um, and quality, and also would, would, uh, recommend being evaluated for obstructive sleep apnea. We've included a resource to that in our description below the stop bang questionnaire, Alcohol and smoking, we discussed very recently, about uh, 15 minutes ago. So there are some nuances with respect to alcohol intakes, not just two drinks, one drink. So that's not, that's not going to be enough, um, but making sure that people are not uh, drinking too much alcohol too frequently and also smoking cessation would be uh, beneficial for lowering your risk of developing high blood pressure uh, or reducing your blood pressure if it is already elevated. And then finally, after, after uh, all of that, evaluating for secondary causes of elevated blood pressure. So again, this is not something we would recommend doing on your own. We'd recommend enlisting the care of a trained medical professional um, and your primary care physician can do this. You don't need to go see a nephrologist right off the bat or uh, other other expert. Your family med uh, or general internist can, can handle this. Um, and if it happens to get to zebra level, things that we don't necessarily expect or, or know too much about, then yeah, refer uh, referring to a specialist would happen at that point. And last but not least, Austin just did a fine overview over different medication options, in addition to sort of laying out the case for using multiple medications at smaller doses rather than maxing out one agent at higher doses, which is maybe not what you would expect. You expect, oh, we'll just start one and then keep cranking up the dose uh, when the reality looks like that using multiple medications at smaller doses tends to work better. Uh, Austin, anything else in that take-home message you think is important? I think that's it, man. This was a lengthy one. It, we did it. <laughs> we did it. Yay. Uh, so thank you guys so much for joining us here. The Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine, strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. This has been episode 178. Links to everything, all the resources, all the tools that we talked about in the podcast are in the description below. Before we let you uh, go, we do have a Memorial Day weekend sale that's coming up uh, this weekend. Uh, use the codes that are linked in the description below. They're just MDW followed by the three-letter abbreviation of the day. Uh, and before you leave, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. And you can catch us here next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See ya.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.